Mac Power Users, Episode 11, Getting Geeky with Services. Hello, this is David Sparks. I'm happy to be here today with Katie Floyd. How are you today, Katie? I'm great, David. How are you? Excellent, and I am looking forward to talking about services in the new OS 10.6 Leopard, or a Snow Leopard release, that is. You are definitely uh, the services geek. This this show has your fingerprints all over it, and I gotta say, after digging in, I'm I'm really excited about the possibilities of what services can do. Yeah, this show, I really want to get people excited about it. On an audio podcast, it's going to be hard to really understand all of this stuff because you really need to be sitting in front of a computer and, and doing it. But I think if nothing else, after you listen to this show, you'll be excited about it and realize that even if you don't want to bother with learning how to program Automator or some of these other applications, these can be very helpful to you and easily installed on your Mac. Right. And we've also got something new this show. We talked in the last show about from time to time how we would occasionally bring in guests or people who are experts in a certain field, and I think this would certainly qualify. We have Paul Kent, who is the organizer of Macworld Expo, who's going to talk a little bit and get our appetites wet for the upcoming Macworld Expo, which is in February of this year. And I think this is a really relevant topic because, you know, you follow people on Twitter. This is about the time of year that people start thinking about Macworld. I know I just booked my hotel. I'm kind of searching around for good airfare deals. So this is the time to start thinking about Macworld. And Paul really is a gem to the Mac community because he puts his heart and soul into making Macworld very special. So it's, it's really going to be fun talking to him and finding out what's new and exciting at this year's Macworld Expo. So the way we're going to do it is we're going to have him talk at the end of the episode. Uh, so if you're not really interested in Macworld, you don't have to listen to that part. But I really hope you do because I want to get as many Mac Power users there this year as possible. Um, you really can't go wrong heading to Macworld. I've, I've never had a bad time there, to be honest with you. No, I, I love Macworld. I, it's the type of thing that I really didn't start going into a couple of years ago. And I, I wish that I would have started going so much sooner. Well, enough gushing. Let's start talking about services. I think the more appropriate title for me when it comes to things like services in AppleScript would be Zealot. Zealot's uh, good. Yeah. I'm, I'm not necessarily a guru, but I, I do get excited about it. Right. But it goes back a long way for me. Uh, do you remember HyperCard? Yes, HyperCard I do things? remember HyperCard. Yeah, that, was, uh, that was the initial programming thing for non-programmers on the on the old Macintosh and I got my hands on it in college and I thought I was just something else you know just the, the idea that I could throw some commands together and make my Mac count down for me or do something like that I just thought that was just incredible so I liked HyperCard then uh, uh, AppleScript came out with System 7 and uh, then we've got to some new tools that are very useful and this all kind of is leading up to services and for someone like me, AppleScript is a very different programming language. It's I can typically read and understand what an AppleScript is doing, but I'm not at the point where I am comfortable creating my own AppleScript. Although I know there's some great books and there's some great resources and tutorials out there um, that I could probably get up to speed on AppleScript pretty quickly without a whole lot of problem. But AppleScript was really designed to be a different type of programming language that's based largely on natural language. Yeah, it's just a different paradigm, really. I 
you know, I, I would like to get more into Cocoa programming. I've done a little bit of it. I have a couple books and I, I'm geeky enough that I just think it's fun to be able to fiddle around with a computer application and, and make it pop up a dialogue box or something. It's, that's how, how bad I am. But I realize that I don't have enough time to really do it right. And to learn Cocoa programming, you have to devote a lot of time to it and you have to deal with a lot of crazy little nuances that, you know, you just got to have time and I don't have it. But AppleScript's different. It's really not made to make, make new applications. It's made to enhance the applications you own. So an AppleScript can talk to multiple applications. It can like tell Safari to pull the picture that you have on your screen in your Safari window and, and pull that out of there and save it to Finder into your Windows uh, uh, background you know, folder. And you can then have it open up as your new desktop background. Well, so using the Apple script, it allows you to do all these crazy things and, and make different applications work together. So you can make some things better than the sum of their parts. Uh, but programming in it is different than a typical program. It is natural language. You know, it, it actually it looks like English, which is kind of weird because if you're used to programming, it, it throws you off because, you know, you're used to very set rules. And this you say, show me the finder window in front instead of saying, you know, finder window number zero. Right. Or tell this application to get this piece of data from this application and then do this with it. Yeah. And AppleScript, even though it's a much easier, much more natural programming language for people to pick up, and I would say really is a, a first step for people who want to get into more geekier things like programming, is still a little more than a lot of people want to dig into. And as a result, most people don't ever dig into AppleScript and all of the abilities that it can do. So with the Tiger operating system, Apple then came out with Auto the Robot and Automator. And the idea behind Automator is that you could make Apple script-like activities and functions without having to know any type of programming knowledge. They had a whole series of drag and drop modules that would do different things, or still do, and, and in fact have expanded it with different applications. And all you had to do is kind of put the pieces of the puzzle together and like, uh, what is that called? Is it called the mousetrap game where you, you, you construct this whole mousetrap and you stick a marble in it and you wait for it to go through this track and, and see if it completes all of its tasks and if it doesn't, then you go back and fix a piece of your track and... That's kind of like Automator, I think. Yeah, it's real idiot proof. I mean, you drag uh, a component in. For instance, if you drag a component in to change a value of an image from PNG to JP JPEG, it'll ask you, well, you know, I'm going to change this. Do you want me to make a copy? I mean, it actually thinks, it troubleshoots it while you create the, the application. And uh, so they brought that out with Tiger. It got much better in Leopard, and it's got a lot of refinement in Snow Leopard. And then there really were these these whole communities that popped up around Automator where people would build Automator actions and share them out and people would build on those Automator actions and tweak them so that they met their needs for different applications. And so there's a, there's a lot of great Automator actions out there already written that is probably one that you can find to do what you want to do that is either direct plug and play or one that you can pretty easily modify to work with your situation. And I've used a lot of those and a lot of those resources from those websites. And some of the savvy application developers ship automator scripts with their applications. I love it when they do that. Yeah. You know what's remarkable is that Apple does not 
build automator actions for the iWork suite. I hadn't noticed that until you put it in our outline. Yeah, it, they're just not there. Uh, Microsoft did. You know, Microsoft Office has some very handy automator scripts. And they were actually developed by Ben Waldy, one of the guys I would recommend to go talk to or, or take a look at to get further on this. But, uh, you know, Microsoft took the trouble to develop automator scripts. Of course, they did take their, what was it, Visual Basic out of the most recent version, which got everybody upset. But this was kind of their their take back for it. But I can't believe that, that Apple hasn't got the iWork automator um, actions built yet. Well... To be fair, you say iWork, which does include Keynote, and they do have some Keynote actions, but I haven't seen any for numbers or pages. Yeah. Well, anyway, uh, what you can do with it is is quite a bit. Uh, for instance, Finder Actions, you can rename, copy, move, delete. You can mount a volume, which is very helpful if you're doing FTP transactions. Uh, if you've got photographs, you can resize and change format, and you can submit them to your iPhoto or Aperture libraries. I mean, if you take a look at your Automator window and you just go and look at the library of, of possible actions, there's just a lot of them there. So I think anybody that wants to play with this, just open it up and start playing with it. I mean, you can't really do any damage. Just drag the actions over and you're ready to go. Right. I was noticing one of the automator actions made me think of you specifically and that it will create disk images. And I bet this would, especially if you made it a, a I don't know, a folder action or maybe even a service, would uh, pretty easily automate that process of creating your magic install disk, although you still would have to pop the CDs in. You know, you're right. I'm just looking at that right now. How come I didn't know that? <laughs> now you just you need to get a robot who would open up the jewel cases and put the CDs in your DVD drive. But yeah. other than that, you're good. Yeah, but you know one thing about this show is it's tough to really explain how to use Automator audibly. You almost have to be looking over someone's shoulder. It certainly lends it uh, lends itself to screencasting. Which but, I uh, believe our good buddy Don McAllister has done a couple of Automator shows. I hope he will update those. Uh, for Snow Leopard. I know he's he's going through Snow Leopard now. Yeah, I, I'm sure he will. And I think Don is actually planning a show around services as well. So I'm not sure if it's out now. It may be out by the time this show comes out. But head over to Screencast Online to get some more information on these services. But And that's really what, what brings us to Snow Leopard and, and what has changed. Automator always was a very interesting tool. But you really had to dig for it to use it. And it had some nice built-in functions where you could save an automator action as an actual application or you could save it as a plugin. But uh, getting to the automator actions was always kind of difficult. You had to save them somewhere and navigate to that folder. Well, you could kind of get to them through the contextual menu, uh, but it took several steps. It was under the More tab on the right-click on the desktop, and it really you had to dig for it. And frankly... You you build this big library of them, and it's not contextually sensitive, so it's going to be hard to find it, and uh, it just really wasn't ideal. And you combine that with another problem that we had in Leopard and everything before with OS X was this services menu, which was kind of an unpolished gem. It, it was a great idea to take text services, and I believe if memory serves, this stuff came out of the predecessor to OS X when back on the next platform they had the services menu as well. Right. Um, so you had this great idea, but it really wasn't polished. And you'd open up the services menu before Snow Leopard, and to get to it, you would have to click on your 
application in the menu bar and the, the services was usually there. And then half of them or 75% of them or all of them would be grayed out. Except yeah. you could convert something to Chinese simplified text or something. Yeah, and that was the thing. The ones that were working uh, half the time weren't really what you needed. And then the applications would rebuild that library. So you would have three or four versions of the same uh, service in there. So it just became a mess. And uh, Apple really went out of their way, I think, to fix that problem with Snow Leopard. And they combined these two great ideas. So uh, you t now they took services out of that menu and made it contextually sensitive. And they put the power in the hands of the Mac user to create their own services, which you never could have done before. You had to actually you know, crack open Xcode to create a service before, whereas now you can go in Automator, and it actually, when you open it up, has a menu item to go straight into services. Right. And not only can you create your own services, but you can also manage various services. They've now got, uh, it, it's buried in the system preferences, but if, if you go into system preferences, and then of all places, keyboard, and under keyboard shortcuts, there's a whole section for services where you can assign keyboard shortcuts, which would make sense under that system preference pane, but you can also enable and disable them. So for example, if you just end up with a ton of services that you'll never end up using, or very rarely will use, you can go in and turn them on and off. Yes. So, but before I get into that, let's talk a little bit about creating your own services. You go into Automator and you open a new item and there's a simple menu there and just click on service. And then that looks just like you're back in Automator. But when you're done, it saves it onto your, um, to your drive and it saves it into the services menu. So if there's anything in particular you need, you can do it yourself. And there's already a growing uh, crop of these things showing up on the Internet. I posted on Max Sparky and one I got from, I think it was John Gruber, that uh, makes a large case text. So if you're creating a title line for an article or for something you're writing, you just highlight that line right-click on it, and it sets the case. Or yeah. there are also automator actions that if you've accidentally been typing for the last several sentences with the caps lock key on before you notice it, that will do the exact opposite and go through and fix that up for you. Yeah, and there was one just this today that was listed on Mac OS X Hints that will do a cut as plain text, oh. which is you know a great tool. Because you go download that one. Well, it's, it's actually an Apple script, and they just give you the Apple script. You need to go in Automator and build it yourself. So that's actually a good homework assignment for the Mac Power users is to, uh, we'll put the link into the show notes and go download that Apple script and drop it into Automator. And I guess that's a point I didn't really make. Using Automator, you're not limited to just the tools they built in. It can actually run code. So you can put a bit of Perl code or a bit of Apple script or anything you want in it to uh, juice up your Automator script. So the possibilities are really much more endless than they have been even in previous versions. Yes. And building them yourself, there's some really good resources on the on the web. I think Don will have some. I think uh, earlier I talked about a guy named Ben Waldi, uh, W-A-L-D-I-E, and he's done some screencasts for Peach Pit because uh, he did some books on Automator and AppleScript. And there, oh, here it's called Mac Automation Made Simple. I would recommend that podcast because he does the same thing. He goes through Automator and shows you how to build them. Okay, but let's say you don't want to do Automator. You don't want to learn how to drag the, the tools over and you don't want to build your own Automator scripts and you know what's the point of services for you at this point? And it really is doesn't matter. I mean, if you don't want to learn how to build your own services, there are a ton of them developing on the net 
and uh, they are all useful to you. I, I would recommend starting by going to some of the automatic downloads that we've already got available to us. Uh, the best place would be at macos10automation.com. And that's 10 with an X, X so it's actually spelled out, macosxautomation.com. Yeah, they've built a, a huge library of automators, or, or I'm sorry, services scripts already. And, and these down- are the man, aren't they? Yeah, it's from Sal So. Keegan, I, I never get his name right, but Sal also wrote the Apple Script One Two Three book, which I like and am reading currently. And Very I smart guy. Sal is an Apple employee who really was involved in the designing and the development of all of this. Yes, he's the chief monkey muck of automation at Apple. I think that's his official title. And you know, I, I've met Sal on the floor of MacWorld, and you know, other Mac employees are, are kind of. You know, they, they want to stick to their script and they're, you know, going to tell you exactly what they're supposed to and um, maybe not uh, nice people, but maybe not the most personable people when they're on the so- show floor. And Sal is like, oh, yeah, hey, let's talk about this or let's talk about that. A very, very personable guy if you actually run into him at Macworld. And he's an automation evangelist. I mean, he, he, he comes up with great ideas and ways to just make your Mac hum. I mean, and the point of this show really is to get you interested in, and try some of this stuff out. Because if you start incorporating it into your, your daily routine, you will save time. Uh, just as a small example, uh, when I post a picture to MacSparky.com, I like it to be 350 pixels wide, and I like it to be JPEG. And a lot of times I start with pictures that aren't, aren't either of those things. And you know, for a while I did this thing where I drag it into preview or somewhere and resize it and oh, save no. it as a different format. And, you know, I created a, um, an automator script under leopard and now under snow leopard, I have it as a service. So I can just have a picture sitting on my desktop, right click it and then run my service that I created called 350 JPEG. And within seconds it's done. Which is a fairly simple, I mean, not to, not to say that it's not useful, but it's a fairly simple script or service to write. It's, it's what, one step or two steps? I think it's two steps. And, okay. uh, and it's two steps because I didn't make a copy because I don't want two copies afterwards. After I'm done with the picture, I post it to the website and I'm done with it. I never use it again. But you could. I mean, you could take that very simple automator two-step script or, or service that you wrote that says, make the dimensions this convert it to a JPEG, um, and you could do all kinds of things with it. You could make a copy and archive it into a folder that's Max Sparky Images, um, or you could email it, or, I mean, you could do anything with it by just adding a few different steps to that action that you already have. So it really talks about how these these scripts and these actions can build on each other, and even if that particular action isn't useful, you can turn it into something that is. Yeah, and you can even... Um upload it to your FTP and put it on your website. I mean, there's a lot you could do with it. I did a script also at Max Sparky in Automator before um, services. I'm going to have to update it for the new Leopard, Snow Leopard services that uh, I like to go to some of these websites that have great desktop wallpapers. And uh, when I see what I like, I just run an Automator script that downloads the picture, saves it to my wallpaper uh, folder on my Mac and then installs it on my desktop so I can know that it happened. And, you know, it, it's a simple item, but it makes things faster. You're coming up with a pretty complex automator script, aren't you? 
I'm I'm having issues with it, and I really just need to break it down and, and take it step by step. And I, I will have it put together, I think, by this weekend. But I am trying to come up with an automator script or workflow that will do basically all of the post-production of our podcast for us. I mean, obviously, a human has to go in and edit it and take out all the places where we don't make sense or talk over each other. But from that point, you know, you, you think you've done, you've done an hour or two's worth of work on editing this podcast, but then you've got this whole other little nitpicky detail about I've got to level it and I've got an AIFF and I've got to convert it to the MP3 and I've got to go and I've got to add the tags and then I've got to, you know, save that. And then some of the tags are the same all the time. Some of the tags have to be customized depending on the show. And then I need to upload it to one FTP site and then I need to go over to our WordPress log and... I think that's going to have to be the end of my automator script because I don't know how to automate the rest of the process. You know, and then there's a whole show notes component that adds to it. So, I mean, I'm thinking I could really save myself a lot of time and, and a lot of stupid errors in having to go back and redo things um, to automate what are individually fairly simple steps, but in total, you know, take up a good deal of time. You know, you really hit the nail on the head there. The, the purpose of this automation is to take the the rote tasks out of computing and allow you to be creative. I mean, the more time you can spend writing, recording, drawing, fixing your photos, and the less time you can spend dealing with managing files and computers, the better you are. And, and I think this stuff really pays for itself really quickly uh, and save time, especially for, I think, uh, the typical uh, Mac power user and, and the people who listen to the show. I mean, it's fun to do this stuff, but it really does pay back once you start to understand how it all works. And it's just those, you know, it, it comes to a point of if you do you start finding yourself, it's, it's almost like the reason why I like text expanders so much. You know, we're creatures of habit and we find ourselves typing the same thing, saying the same thing, doing the same types of activities over and over and over again. And it's like, you know, if I would just take a few minutes today and program up this automator script or program up this text expander snippet or whatever it is I need to do, yeah, it's going to take me 15 minutes today to figure that out and put that together. But I'm going to save over the course of the next year, you know, 12 hours. And funny you should mention that because one of my services is for text expander. Oh, that can boy. Highlight. So you have automated an automated automation process? <laughs> yes, I have. So you can right-click uh, any selection of text and create a text expander snippet. I mean, that, that was an automation service that actually I think Smile on my Mac had prepared, but I turned it into a service. Hmm. You scare me sometimes. It's a lot of fun, you know. Uh, so I kind of got off track, but what I want you to do if you're listening to this is pause this recording, go to macosxhints.com, and there's a, a section there for services. It's real obvious. And they've got downloads there. They've got a grid with, I don't know, 10 or 15 downloads of groups of services based on the web or mail or pictures or whatever is interesting to you. Download all that stuff, click install, and then you're done. It, it creates the service, saves it to the services menu on your hard drive, and then they're already built in. But people and, should go to macosxautomation.com, not macosxhence.com. I'm sorry. I'm reading the wrong section. Yeah. <laughs> well, anyway, so macosxautomation. It's just so you install all of those things. Then go up to your um, services menu on your Mac, which is under your current application. It says services, or you can right-click. 
and have it open your services preference. Or you can go to your keyboard preference pane that also has the services right in there. And just scroll through that list and you will be amazed at all the tools you have. I'm just looking at the stuff that you know they had pre-built and I installed and there are some really helpful automated, uh, automation and services entries in here. One of the ones that they've built that I'm using now is PDF encrypt file because I send PDFs to people and I want them encrypted. And it used to be kind of a pain to go through and do that in software. Now I can just drag the folder or the file to the desktop, right click, and uh, the, the service pops right up. You click it, you type in a password, and you send it off. It's, it's that easy. Now, I've, I've talked a lot about taking basically standing on the shoulders of others and then making a, a script do what you want to do. So is it possible to take some of these great s services that people have already put together and then break them down into smaller pieces and use those smaller pieces for your own? Absolutely. And where yeah. do those services live? Yeah, that was the trick because it, it's not obvious. I had to do some sleuthing, but it looks like the ones that Apple created that I pulled down from the Mac what is it, Mac Automation, macos10automation.com website, it installed them uh, on my drive under library services menu. So if you go library, then services, you'll see it. Uh, and that's on the root level of your drive, not your home folder, correct? Yes, yes. On mine, that's where they showed up. Uh, but you do have a library services menu on your, on your own directory as well. And that's usually where it saves the services that you've created. Yes. But there are also services in another place. If you look under uh, system slash library slash services, you will find some there as well. It's not ideal because that gives you up to four places that these things can be uh, located if you have your user account and the, and the root level account. But, you know, the idea is it's kind of seamless anyway because when you get into the keyboard shortcuts menu and you click on services, they're all accumulated there. But if you want to go in and, and take an existing one, you can find it in one of those locations, open it up in Automator, and you know, go at it with your heart's content. Cool. I mean, they need to, to break down some of those services to kind of get the last mile on my big Mac Power Users automation process. But yeah. I'll let you know. We'll give you an update on the status of that the next show. Nobody is more anxious than me to hear how well that works, Katie. <laughs> well, you know, I got the idea from Dave Hamilton and John Braun, who completely automated the Matt Geekab post-production for their MP3 version. Yeah. And um, I'm, I'm convinced that if they can do it, I can do it. I, I know they do their upload with it. I'm not sure if they do the levelator, but I, I guess I'll have to ask Dave about that. Well, Dave does a, a, a lot... Um, hands-on during the show. Dave produces a live show. You know, he's got a board and he adjusts the levels manually. And, you know, the beauty of the way that Dave produces his show, which, you know, includes probably thousands of dollars worth of equipment that it's not justifiable for you or I to, to buy, is that, you know, they don't have to edit their show if all goes well. Yeah. Well, we aren't that smooth yet. We aren't, but we're maybe one day. So, do you have any favorite services? Um, there are a couple that I have used pretty regularly. Um, like you, I really like the ability to um, not crop, but to um, scale photos down to size. Um, a lot of times I will do presentations for my Mac users group, which will basically be a, a keynote presentation. And usually I do them on um, 
topics of interest or particular, um, uh, you know, applications or programs or whatever. And I do a lot of research in advance for these. And usually I end up with a folder on my desktop where I've clicked, uh, you know, clipped out, you know, usually web images or pictures or things that I'm planning on using um, in this particular keynote. And there is a services that you can download or build yourself or use that will take all of the images in a folder and create a keynote presentation with the slides. Now, obviously, you have to go back in and add your text or whatnot, but it definitely kind of gives you a, a building starting point. Yeah, I, I just I go crazy with these things. I like to change the image size and format um, service. The encryption of the PDF is is increasingly useful with me. I'm I'm on an experiment right now uh, with a, a test. I've been using Evernote for a while. I've never really drank the Kool-Aid with it for one reason or another. So I decided to try the new Yojimbo. So I set up some Yojimbo services to get things into. I'm going to try it for a month and then report back. Um, the text expander snippet service is real good. Um, oh, you know, there's an interesting one you can use that'll run an Apple script. So if you code a little bit of Apple script, uh, you can actually highlight it and just run it. Uh, you don't have to open the Apple script editing tool, which is kind of neat. Um, there's one to search in Wikipedia, which is kind of fun. Well, if you're going to do a whole laundry list, then there are a bunch more that I also use. Um, <laughs> there's a uh, service where you can uh, right-click and email a document to someone. So if you know, okay, I need to send this file to so-and-so rather than, you know, open up a new mail window and, and, you know, type out your email and compose it and attach the document. And I tend to forget to attach documents after I've already gone through the process of, of writing this big, long letter and boom, I send it without the attachment. So I found it's usually best to start with the attachment and compose your email from there. So there's this great um, service that you can right-click on a file and create a new email with that as an attachment. Um, so I use quite, I use that one all the time. And same thing with, with text is that if you're um, browsing something on a web page or find something of interest, you can highlight the text and then create a new email uh, with the text that you've highlighted. You know, you can do that also with uh, launch bar yes you can yeah if you just if you have a document on your desktop or wherever and you just click it once and you hit control and hold the space down then it opens launch bar then you type the name of somebody and it goes that's why i've never really got into those in terms of the services menu but uh it is the same it probably would be the same number of clicks so if you want to save some money and don't want to go with launch bar, that's a way to do it. You know, I have not counted the clicks, but I'm sure you will and report yeah. back to us. Yeah. <laughs> there really are a lot. Um, Scrivener has some nice little uh, automated scripts or services you can run through the services menu, which is nice. I, I'm a big fan of the Scrivener application, so I can take a clipping of text and, and make a new clipping in Scrivener uh, using the services menu now. Uh, you know, it really is liberating for me. I I think that this improvement to services and automator with Snow Leopard is probably more useful to me than any of the big rollouts with Leopard. You know, and there are a lot of these hidden gems in Snow Leopard that we really haven't gone through. That I mean, it, it, I'm sure David, you're a, a services geek, and I think once people start to dig in and use them, they'll find exactly how useful they are. I mean, 29 bucks for Snow Leopard, is that worth the price of admission alone? Yeah, I mean, I know that's great, Time Machine and some of the other stuff we got with Leopard, but 
this stuff was really for the geeks and uh, I'm really enjoying it. So we've got these services now. I think you should take a look at them if you're listening to this. Hopefully uh, you will and report back to us. I think there's some space here for a good website. Maybe it's going to be macOS10automation.com or somebody to start collecting these services as, as the uh, users start creating them. And my guess is within a few months, you're going to be able to go to a website and find downloads of services of just about anything you'd need, or at least something very similar to get you started. We should also mention as a great primer, the Mac break series with Sal on services. It's, I believe, I want to say it's, it's four Mac break video series. Two of them are longer. They're about 15 to 20 minutes. And then two of them are shorter that are eight or nine minutes a piece. So, you know, all in whole, you, you've probably got a good 45 minutes worth of, um, excellent video tutorials that are, are based off that Mac OS 10 automation. Um, website and teaches you how to use those basics about services. And then alone, the Mac OS 10 automation website has an entire training section that is devoted to teaching how to use those. So you, you could really spend the better part of a weekend on that site alone between the, the various videos that they've done and in really breaking apart and grinding down all the various services. And I'm a big hands-on person. You can read about automation. You can read about services. But you're really not going to hurt anything, probably. I should, I should, um, you know, put a little caveat there. You're probably not going to hurt anything by really starting to dig down and and experiment and play with these yourselves. Because I know that I learned so much more by doing and trial and error and getting something right and failing um, than I do by reading a lot of these manuals and stuff. And, and what I would recommend is find something small that you do on a regular basis and see if you can't design a script around it. Because if you don't find something to help help yourself with it, you're not going to be motivated to really go for it. And uh, there's a lot of nice little scripts you can do. Uh, uh, I talked a few times already about Ben Waldy. He's got a book uh, that's actually for Leopard called, I think, Visual Quick Start Guide to Automator, which goes through several interesting scripts. Um, I don't sure if it was Ben or Sal, but one of them had an interesting automator script that you could set up an iMac at a party and people can walk up to it and um, click the mouse and it takes their picture and then it creates a nice little photo book of everyone who's taken their picture during the party. So I would be uh, great at a wedding. Yeah, you know, it really seemed like a good idea and I'm waiting for the next event in my life where I can uh, justify doing that and not make my wife just laugh at me hysterically. Well, I so. think your wife is going to laugh at you hysterically regardless, but you are exactly the type of person that that type of workflow is geared towards. Yeah, well, I, I can't wait. I have to admit, I just cannot wait to do that. So th there's some really good resources out there. Uh, ben Waldy's site is automatedworkflows.com. Uh, so that's another one I would look at, and he has that great podcast I talked about earlier. And I'm just really excited about talking about it um, I know this show really isn't perfect for an audio podcast, but I hope you're excited about it too. And I'd like to hear from some of the readers and what they're doing. Yeah, and I share with us some of your, uh, I don't know if you can share with us your scripts, but if you're doing something really creative with it that you think other people need to know about, uh, let us know. I mean, I know we're going to talk about it a little more in our feedback section, but we got a great email from a listener who just posted uh, an entire blog post about how he used these services uh, to create a send to Evernote service that I've downloaded and used. Yeah, then we'll put that in the show notes as well. Ken uh, did a blog entry on that. Uh, it's you know it's just I think it's really going to expand by the creativity of the users. 
Mac users are very creative people to begin with, so I'm very anxious to see where all this goes. Yeah, I, I am too. I think we're really just brushing the surface, and I know we're not going very in-depth in this podcast, and it's really hard to do that without it making for bad radio because there's only so much you can discuss in audio form about services. Um, Click but, new service, Yeah. drag over, change size, you know. <laughs> Click OK. Yeah, we're not going to do that. Yeah, but. then we'll get some nasty iTunes comments about how long-winded and boring we are. <laughs> well, we are two lawyers. So, we are uh, two lawyers, so you know. <laughs> okay, so I think we've covered services or at least whetted your appetite a little bit. I look forward to continuing the dialogue on that with the listeners and seeing where all this goes. My guess is, like I said, in two or three months, there's going to be a couple of really good websites where we can go and download great services if we don't want to learn or download great services if we want to expand upon. Cool. Uh, we had some interesting feedback from our security episode. Always have interesting yeah. feedback, and we only get to share a fraction of it in, the, in, in these feedback shows. We try to only share what's helpful to other people. Um, but thank you. Keep your feedback coming, whether we talk about it on the show or not. And I know I've been a little lagged on my email, and I will, I will get caught up, I promise. Well, you got a new job. That's always hard. Things have uh, been busy, but um, I, I read everything, and I will eventually reply to everything. We got an email from one of my favorite uh, internet nerds, John Chandler. Uh, John runs the website uh, creativitist.com, C-E-R-E-A-T-I-V-I-T-Y-I-S-T, creativityist. There we go. John has got a great website, and he's always into Mac productivity. He had a good idea about security uh, and using the one password uh, database on your Dropbox. And he said, hey, you know, if you, it occurred to him that you can remote wipe your 1Password keychain. If you lose your Mac, you just go into Dropbox and delete it. And if somebody has access to your system, uh, they would presumably have access to your Dropbox as well, but it won't be there anymore to supply data to your 1Password keychain. Well, this remote wipe feature would really work with just about anything that you had stored on a service like Dropbox where you could remotely wipe it. Um, you know, so maybe there's a, a, a benefit to using services like that. I guess a couple of comments on that. I guess you have to outweigh the security concerns of having something with that kind of secure information on a service like Dropbox, I wouldn't be so worried about the one password keychain because it in and of itself is encrypted. Um, and someone would still have to know your one password keychain password, but I, I suppose there's some way they could possibly hack it and get the data. I don't know how that would work. And balance that against having the data up on a service, like I said, um, like Dropbox. But I, I would say, while that's certainly a good, you know, last level of defense, my concern would be is that if someone can get into your, you know, in order for your Dropbox to remote wipe things off of your computer, you would actually have to, I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, David, get into and be working in the user account where that Dropbox is set up. So if someone already has that level of access, you've got other problems to worry about as well. Well, I agree. Uh but I don't think that's necessarily true. If you delete it off Dropbox, it goes and deletes it off every computer that Dropbox is on. And and really, that was going to be my point, is is that cuts both ways. If someone gets your Mac and deletes everything out of your Dropbox-synced folder, it's going to delete itself from your computer as well, your other computer. So, for instance, right. someone got my laptop, and they went and deleted uh, all the stuff I have in my Dropbox folder on my laptop, then I'd get home to my iMac, and it would be empty as well. 
So the moral of the story is backup. Well, and like, you know, you do have a couple of safety measures in place. You do have your backup. And then, of course, you can restore a certain amount of history from the Dropbox website. But I guess my question would be, uh, if you have a Mac that's off or a Mac that's not connected to the Internet, then obviously Dropbox is not going to be able to sync and not going to be able to wipe that for you. My question, and I don't know the answer to this, is, you know, let's say someone doesn't get access to my account because I've got it password protected, but they otherwise have access to a user account on the Mac. Will Dropbox then work in the background while that other account is logged in and active? Yeah, I don't know. I, I don't think it works. I don't until, think it will until you get it rolling. But that's but a yeah, question. it's a good it's a good plan B, and I have my one password keychain on my Dropbox anyway just because it's the most convenient way to share that information among multiple Macs. We also got an email about FileVault. And hey. surprisingly, uh, or not surprisingly, some people are very happy with it. I, I told just, you, you were just overly negative about FileVault. <laughs> I would not use it myself, but you were really nasty about FileVault. It just never worked for me, and it was a lot of trouble to get rid of it. So and it just gave me nightmares of the old days with Norton. So, But I'm glad that it's working for some people, and uh, I'm glad to be proven wrong on that. Um, a couple more emails that uh, didn't get in the outline, Katie. Was uh, One was about the use of an administrator account. And I don't know how we didn't talk about that. Yeah, do what we say, don't do what we do. Yeah, I think that's why. Uh, so there is a, definitely a benefit from not running your Mac in an admin account. You use it in a user account in that way. Uh, if someone gets in, they don't have the ability to do the kind of damage you can do from an admin account. And everyone that has any lick of common sense will tell you when you get a new Mac, set up a separate user account and run all your apps and everything through that. And for some reason, I have just never got around to it. Yeah, I've thought about it. Well, there's no excuse. And someday I'm probably going to pay for that. But maybe the next time I do a nuke and pave, I will, I will come clean and take care of that. Also on the topic of security, we got an email from Fletcher, and I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing this right, about a service called Adona, A-D-O-E-N-A. And full disclaimer, this is something that I've never used before. But we mentioned in the last podcast services like LoJack for laptops and like Undercover that will supposedly assist you in locating a lost or stolen Mac by tracking it by IP address and then sharing that information with law enforcement. And Adona for Mac is a free and open source tracking for mobile devices that supposedly can even take pictures with the built-in eyesight. Uh, big drawback is that uh, as of the time he sent us this email, which was in September of 2009, um, it's not functional because they were having problems with their back-end service. So yeah, I guess that's a, a disadvantage to all of these types of services. Yeah, and there was another one called Undercover, that someone sent us in a link for that uh, is a Mac location service. And someone also sent us one called Little Snitch, which uh, I'm actually familiar with. I've used it before. I've used Little Snitch. That's really not going to help you recover a lost or stolen machine as much as it snitches and reports to you um, about what type of network traffic is going in and out of your Mac. And I think it's really more designed to alert you um, if things are happening and data is being transmitted that you don't necessarily know about. Exactly. When we talked about the firewall, we were talking about preventing malicious data from getting into your computer. And uh, Little Snitch's goal is to tell you what kind of data is leaving your computer. So every time an, a hole to the Internet is opened up and something is sent out, 
little snitch will give you a little summary, say, hey, this application is accessing this port and sending data. And a lot of times it's just maybe an application phoning home to see if it needs an update or something like that. But it also could be something evil and nefarious. So little snitch helps you find that stuff. You ever ran that? I have. And I will tell you, I have not installed it since I did my most recent nuke and pave. And part of the problem is, number one, it kept snitching about stuff that I already knew was going on. And I never found anything going out that I didn't already know about and didn't already approve of. So it became more of a hassle. And I was having a little difficulty using it. For example, I have a guest account on my computer set up for when friends or family come over and they want to use my computer or check their email or get on the web, but I don't want them in my user account. And by very nature, that guest account doesn't allow you to save certain settings or preferences. And I was constantly having issues with little snitch popping up on that account. And everybody was saying, why is this popping up? What do I hit? Can you clear this out for me? Um, so I, little snitch, I think has a use for people who understand it and have a specific purpose for using it. Um, but for people who don't really want to get into the nitty gritty and the details and hassle with it, it can be more of a hassle than a help. I think what happens is a little snitch wears you down. It does. I ran it for a while. I took it off because I got so tired of it. I stopped reading what it was telling me. I was just clicking. Okay. So it completely defeated the purpose. And, uh, so I decided to take it off and I haven't used it in a year or two, but it is a great application and I think it's an, it's an interesting service. And like you said, if that stuff really interests you, or if I suddenly become aware of Mac users, uh, broadcasting data out that they don't want to be because of something malicious, I will probably I will reinstall it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So we had some interesting feedback on the security episode and, uh, uh, but we're going to be talking in our next show about a subject that's near and dear to my heart and near and dear to every Mac power user's heart, troubleshooting. What do you do? When do you do it? What steps? What's overkill? What's not? Um, this is a, a question that I get asked a lot about. You know, this is going on, and I think too quickly people tend to jump to um, more drastic measures than they need to. And so we'll talk a little bit about how we troubleshoot issues uh, and the different tools and utilities that are available for troubleshooting and when they should be used and when they shouldn't. Because just because you do something once and it helps you out doesn't mean that you then need to do that thing every day. Well, it's it depends on your pedigree. If you spent any significant time on Windows, you know that as soon as your computer slows down, you got a new compave. That's true. And uh, so you bring that psychology over to the Mac and you don't really need to do that. A lot of times you can solve your problems very easily and you don't need to go to extreme measures. So I think the idea for the next episode is we're going to go through the steps and hopefully you'll go through several steps before you get to the point that you pull out that install disk. Multiple steps. But that, then once you pull out the install disk, you've pretty much exhausted all of your other options. Okay, so thank you for listening to the services episode. But now we'd like to take you to a pre-recorded interview that both Katie and I had the pleasure of doing with Paul Kent. Here we go. Okay, we're here today with Paul Kent, who is the head guy for Macworld 2010. How are you doing, Paul? Good, David. Thanks for having me on. Uh, it's great having you. And uh, Katie and I are both frequent attendees of Macworld, and uh, we saw that you guys are coming out with some interesting announcements this year. We thought we'd have you on to kind of talk about what's going on. So, you know, we are actually in a funny place because we always open registration in uh, in late September, 
But as you know, for the last 25 years, the show has been the first week of January. Now, in 2010, the show is going to be the second week of February. So we actually have a whole six weeks more than we've ever had in the past when we, to talk about Macron. Now, I got to tell you, moving it to Fe- February was great. I just, uh, I'm really I've heard happy that from that. a lot of people, too. Yeah, joy was going on throughout the land when we made that announcement. It, and, you know, the funny thing is that first week of January slot, it became kind of um, the only justification for it was really tradition. I mean, even though, you know, every year people had said, you know, it should be a different time. That's when we had long-term relationships, contracts with the convention center. And those things are not that easy to move, by the way. But um, it, it's such a make sense type of thing. You know, let everybody enjoy the holidays. Let everybody get back to work the 1st of January and start to, you know, get ready for the show. And, and uh, we think the show will be even better this year. It'll be more attractive to people. Travel rates will be uh, lower than they are because it's not holiday travel. We have a Saturday as part of the show this year, so a lot of the consumers who come to the show that can't get off work to come will be able to come on Saturday. We think that's going to be huge. So all these little subtle changes to the show, I think, are going to add up to be a great experience for all the attendees. Well, I, I got to say, you know, when they had it in January, it was always kind of fun because after you got opening done opening all your Christmas presents, you knew that you know Santa Steve was going to be there in a week or so. <laughs> but uh, to be honest, moving it to February is just such a big benefit for me. I know uh, in terms of getting away from work and being able to go up there, and and I'd imagine for the vendors as well, being able to enjoy the holidays. Yeah, I, where we saw the most anxiety about Macworld being in January was about companies were trying to get products ready for Macworld and had to work through the holidays in order to get, you know, the finishing touches on things. And so now, you know, they'll have that extra little bit of time. And I think we'll probably see even more cool new product announcements at Macworld this year than we have in the past. And the Saturday session or the Saturday opening of the expo floor just seems like such a no brainer. You know, I think it's a great idea. We particularly have gotten a lot of kudos from the education market because, you know, we've always done a lot of content for K-12 educators but it's always the first week that they got to go back to school after the holiday, and it makes it very difficult for them to get away. Even though we have several thousand who come, we're doing a special day of education, uh, a market symposium for K-12 educators, and we moved it to the Saturday, and we really think that that's going to that's gonna open up attendance options for quite a few more people. Now, Paul, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the different components of Macworld, because especially people who haven't been to the show, um, you know, we know that there's this keynote. Uh, we know that there's this expo hall where you get to see all the great goodies come out, but I think not as many people are as familiar with the educational component that goes on with Macworld. So if you could kind of talk about all of the multiple things that Macworld is all at once, just to give people an overall idea of the big picture. Sure, Katie. So, you know, Macworld is interesting in that it's really one of the last technology trade shows and conferences that's open to the public in, in this way. And so Macworld is truly this big kind of tent for all of the different types of products that Apple puts out. So, you know, it's called Macworld, but as Apple's business has changed over the years, so has Macworld changed over the years. So we really appeal to people who are anywhere in the Apple products universe, whether you're a Mac customer, you know, an OS X customer, there's a lot of stuff at Macworld for, for iPhone users, for iPod users, and there's even, you know, Apple TV stuff that shows up at Macworld. So you look at Macworld as this kind of big tent under which there are lots of pillars. Most of what happens at Macworld is uh, for Macs, Mac users and Mac OS X users. And so we developed these you know, very exhaustive programs, these conference programs that appeal to all the different types of audiences who come. So if you look at Macworld as a big tent that not only covers all of Apple's different products, it covers a lot of the audiences who use Apple's products. So for example, I mentioned before, 
that we have certain strands of our education that are specifically for K-12 educators, how Apple technology is being used in the K-12 classroom. We have another set of conference sessions that are strictly for enterprise, maybe say Fortune 2000 and um, large university installations that are worried about, you know, what do you do when you have, you know, 5,000 Macs in an installation? All of the kind of unique uh, um, issues facing enterprise managers that are deploying Apple technology. And again, this extends to the iPhone as well because now all of a sudden if your company is given, you know, 10,000 people an iPhone and it's an extended part of their desktop, there's a lot of unique things to managing um, those devices that are of unique concern to these type of enterprise environments. So enterprise customers is another type of uh, customer who comes to Macworld. Of course, you know, traditionally Macworld has been associated with, uh, with creative arts. So we have graphic artists, art directors, musicians. Photography has been a huge strand at Macworld for several years. And videography. So if you notice, these map to the pro apps that Apple uh, puts out with Logic, Final Cut, and Aperture. Um, so Apple caters to those audiences. And you know, these are great products that are great solutions that run in a Mac OS X environment. And so those people come to Macworld as well. So creative artists come as well. Small business people, general Mac enthusiasts who want to become power users and be better at their Mac. So we have educational content for all of these audiences in our conferences somewhere. There are a few different, uh, and I think the best way for me to do it is kind of give you the, kind of the overview of what it is. And people should really go to our website, www.macworldexpo.com, and, um, and get familiar with the individual things that we're offering. But we offer everything from two-day product training, so two-day classes on one particular product. For example, um, if you want to improve your Photoshop skills, we have a two-day class with, um, with some of the best uh, instructors in the Photoshop world come to Macworld and share their knowledge for people who want to get better at Photoshop. Similarly, Final Cut, similarly, AppleScript, um, Logic, just about every major product, major productivity tool, we have a two-day class. And those two-day classes, we call them power tools, really help become people become power users. We also have a three-day conference called our Users Conference, which covers areas of interest, but instead of it being two days long, these are a bunch of 75-minute sessions spread out over three days, of which there's many strands, and someone who signs up for the user conference can pick and choose between any of these strands. So there's about 60 sessions altogether that you can choose from to kind of dial in your own conference experience. You may be a small business owner, and there may be a couple of sessions in our small business strand that would be of interest to you. But then you might want to take Ted Landau's Troubleshooting Your Mac class just because you want to have better competency in that area. And then you have always been interested in you know, this hobby that you have of photography. You can take a class on photography as well, all as part of the user conference. So we have thematic groupings of content, but people are free to go in between these them thematic groupings. Once you buy the user conference, you can kind of go in and out of classes as you wish for the three, day three days. Uh, also, like I said, and also, Paul, there's a great session called Mac at Work. Yeah, I heard you'll let just about anybody teach one of these sessions. Well, you know, every year we invite a couple of new people to the faculty, and, you know, this submission caught my eye, and, you know, I'd heard good things about the instructor. And so um, we're happy to say that um, David Sparks will be speaking at MacLeod for the first time this year. Yes, I'm quite excited. You know, I've given so many jury trials and big cases, but this has got me more nervous than anything I've done in a long time, so it's good for me. Yeah, no pressure. Just don't mess up and everything will be fine. <laughs> I'm actually uh, going to be doing uh, previews of it with some of the local Mac groups to work out the kinks. So I, I'm going to be ready when I get up there. I'll be loaded for bear. 
Well, we're that, very happy to have you with us. Yeah, that's going to be a lot of fun. You know, another thing about Macworld that I think people underestimate is the social aspect of it. This is unlike any conference I have ever gone to in my life, and I've gone to a lot of them, and uh, it's just so special. I mean, you were talking about educators. I mean, you can be sitting at the, uh, at the little luncheon counter there and just make friends with the person next to you, and he might be a principal of a school, or he may be a graphic designer, or somebody just taking the day off and coming to check it out. I have never met anyone at Macworld that I didn't immediately like. Well, I think the thing is, Macworld is, um, for 25 years we've been doing this, Macworld I think is the standard bearer for creating a social atmosphere at a trade show. And one of the reasons that Macworld has had this vibe that has grown organically over the years, remember, you know, the common denominator is mostly the people who are pretty, pretty passionate about the technology that they use. I mean, and yeah, the common denominator is Apple products, but you know, they're turned on by cool GPS technology, they're turned on by cool software, they're, you know, they're, they're really just technology passionate people. So you kind of have that as kind of a base link between anybody you may be standing next to. And I do agree, you know, Macworld has fostered this over the years. You know, the, the Mac culture kind of sprung out of this user group culture of people helping people. And that's a lot of what goes on at Macworld. So in addition to the classes that we host, host um, you'll find lots of really interesting hallway conversations. You'll find 20 people sitting in a circle on the floor in the convention center who have just met who are showing, um, you know, gosh, anything from new Excel macro techniques to, uh, you know, new color correction techniques to new, you know, photography, um, uh, cropping techniques. All of these types of things happen at Macworld and very organically, spontaneously. And, you know, this is something that we, uh, our job as the, as the operators of the show is to create an environment where that can happen and then get out of the way and let the people do it themselves. And it's really been a formula that's worked very well for us. Uh, we just put on an interesting show have an interesting product viewing experience for people on the trade show floor, put together good conferences, and really this, this amorphous but incredibly dynamic thing called the Mac community kind of takes over, and uh, a lot of good connections are made during the week at Macworld. Well, you know, David and I met at Macworld a couple of years ago, and I, I jokingly say, but it's completely true, some of my best friends I only see one time a year, and that's at Macworld. And, you know, Katie, here's the thing is, in a world where we're spending so much time behind our screens – there is a very unique value to face-to-face. -face. And, you know, if it happened all the time, maybe it would be less impactful. But that is another thing that Macworld really brings to the marketplace is that you are reminded that doing business or socializing with real human beings by shaking their hand or, you know, sitting across from them at a meal has a very unique place in the world. You know, as, as our culture changes, and again, we do so much more by email, by Twitter, by Facebook, you know, pick your poison – Face-to-face -face has a very unique value, and it's very impactful. It kind of reminds us you know, that we are human beings, and human beings like to socialize. It's just a special place. I have to admit, every year I really enjoy my time going up there and getting away from the world and just having a, a fun week to just let my hair down and be a geek. And I would highly re recommend it to anyone who listens to this show because it is just so special. Well, I appreciate you saying that. And you know, all of your listeners will have an opportunity to meet you in person, and I think there's a unique value to that. And it just kind of makes that, um, that podcast relationship, right, where, you know, you're disseminating information. It's kind of a, you know, for the most part, it's kind of a one-way street. This really creates relationships, and that makes, makes everything a lot more interesting. Now, you've had some pretty exciting news this week about the keynote as well. Yeah, so we call them feature presentations, and feature presentations are our special presentations that are open to all. And we go out and we find some of the most impactful, knowledgeable, and I should say, remember, 
all speakers at Macworld have to pass a certain litmus test, right? The litmus test is that there's two streams. One is they have to be very smart, and the other thing is they have to be a good presenter. One, just one is not going to make it on the Macworld faculty. So we want people who are dynamic presenters and also know what they're talking about. And then the best of the best of those, we elevate up to what we call feature presentations. We put them in a very big room, amazing you know, staging, amazing sound system. And um, these presentations are open to all. And these presentations are meant to kind of delight you, you know, um, perk your interest, kind of give you a little bit of vision, commentary on where the world is going. And this year, I'm really pleased that the first two, and there are more coming, but the first two that we announced are the inimitable David Pogue from the New York Times, a longtime friend of Macworld, and Leo Laporte from The Week in Tech. Two of probably the best-known technology commentators in the world will be doing two of the feature presentations. David right. is amazing. You know, you know, he's so entertaining. You know, everything about David is just, he, he's a one-man media machine. I mean, from the videos that, that he does for The New York Times to the books that he published, publishes, the Missing Manual series, you know, he's just amazing, and he just approaches technology in such a delightful way that just makes it fun to be a technology consumer. That, David, David has built a whole career on that. And his in-person presentations, they sometimes have magic. They sometimes have musical performance. He does these great song parodies that are just hysterical. But he also you know, works in insightful um, commentary on where the world of technology, the world of being an Apple products user is going. He's infectious. You know, last, year I, last year I went to his show, and I call it a show because that's what it's like. And he had... Uh, the guy up there from Ocarina, and they played the Beatles music on it, and everybody was cheering. And then at the end, Matt came in, you know, from uh, Where the Hell is Matt and YouTube sure. fame. Sure. So I got to get on stage with Matt. I mean, you really got to make that one. If you're going to get up to Macworld, don't miss that show because it will be a lot of fun. I agree. So we've just got 138 days left. So what do people need to do if they want to go to Macworld this year between now and then? Well, first, uh, block it out on your calendar, February 9th through 13th. The conferences run all five days. The exhibits run the 11th, 12th, and 13th, which is a Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. So get it on your calendar. Go to www.macworldexpo.com and start looking at our conference programs and see if the conferences are for you. Many of those two-day classes, those power tools that I spoke about before, they do sell out. So you know, if you're going to be funding it yourself or if you're going to have your, you know, your company's training budget pay for it, You'll definitely want to learn about those sooner than later and, and pick the one that you're most interested in. Uh, there's a lot of uh, information about how you can interact with um, my company, IDG, um, if you have questions. So uh, we're happy to answer any questions to help you get ready. But take a look and see everything that's going on and, uh, and mark out the days. If you're coming from somewhere else around the world or around the country, you know, you want to start looking for, for good travel deals. We have a whole page about travel at our site that can give you discounts on hotels. And uh, just get, get ready to be part of the world's greatest Apple Products Festival. Now, Paul, do you have any special advice for newbies who are maybe Macworld virgins and have never been before? Because I know I went to my first Macworld a couple of years ago and was excited and giddy and overwhelmed all at the same time just because there was so much to do and so much to see. Yeah, definitely. The, the first thing to do is to you know think in terms of, well, understand what you're walking into. So like you said, it's just a lot. So having a concept that you're going to need to do a little bit of time management, uh, we'll post the exhibitor list uh, of who's going to be exhibiting a little bit later in the, uh, in the year, probably around December 1st. And you'll want to look at that and you want to you know, start to kind of highlight the exhibitors that you know you want to visit and kind of figure out where they are on the show floor. I should share with you that um, last year we launched something pretty cool. We uh, had our own iPhone app written called iMacworld. 
that was a tool that basically put the show on your iPhone, all the conference sessions and all the exhibits. We're doing a lot of upgrades to it now. You'll be able to actually use an interactive map to mark the exhibits that you want. Uh, and so you'll be able to kind of do your own customized map and set up your own customized calendar. You'll have a notepad, and so you can take notes on the different places that you've been. There's a lot of really interesting things going on. So you'll want to, you can actually go get the old version of iMac World, which is up on uh, on the iTunes, uh, the App Store right now. You can go get that if you wanted to. But the big thing you want to do is understand that it is kind of a time management trick. Um, if you pay for the conferences, you want to get the most for your money. And so you want to figure out what are your free hours to go to the exhibit floor, um, depending upon what days and what sessions you've paid, um, because these things do overlap. You definitely want to become very familiar with the conference sessions and figure out what's for you and just kind of get an idea for time and location. Macworld is spread out over two buildings at the Moscone Center, Moscone North and Moscone West. The exhibits are in Moscone West and the conferences are in, uh, excuse me, the other way around. The conferences are in Moscone West and the exhibits are in Moscone North. They're two buildings right next to each other, but, you know, it takes a little bit of time to just walk from one place to the other. So just if you have this kind of ethereal perspective of time management when you go to the event, it really will help you. Things are happening at Macworld almost 24 hours a day. There are the, there are the scheduled things that we are offering you, and then there are a myriad of unscheduled things, impromptu things that happen. So you're going to want to kind of be plugged in to some of the uh, bulletin boards. Um, you're going to be wanting to watch uh, at Macworld. We have our own community site, a Ning-based site that you should sign up for because a lot of good information gets posted there. Um, you know, you're going to kind of want to read the trades every day while you're at the show. We have these free and open to the public birds of a feather sessions that happen uh, one of the evenings. And what often happens is you go to a birds of a feather, you take part in the conversation, and invariably those split off into later night um, din late dinners or, you know, going out for cocktails or something like that, where new acquaintances, new contacts start to kind of share information. And that's the organic part. That's the real value add of Macworld that makes it a lot of fun. Yeah, I couldn't recommend highly enough the Ning side. I just started playing with it and I've, uh, I just blogged about it on Mac Sparky and I'm already building my network of friends for Macworld and it awesome. looks like it's going to be just a lot of fun having that as a resource. Um, and I was really impressed last year the way you guys improved upon the AT&T coverage. I know uh, that you were behind a lot of that because uh, the, uh, the year before when the iPhone first came out, it was pretty much useless. But last year, it was, it was pretty stable. Yeah, we had to work with AT&T pretty closely in order to bring additional bandwidth in and bring additional Wi-Fi bandwidth in. So um, it, it, it is a chore. I mean, it, you got to figure Macworld is a single largest collection of iPhone devices in one place at one time <laughs> in the world, right? And, you know, it, it will break most bandwidth capacities. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what, Macworld is a very special place. And I think it's uh, the work that you do, Paul, and your staff. And I, I appreciate it so much because it, it really is truly one of my favorite weeks of the year to go up there. And I wanted to just thank you for doing such a great job over these years. And I can't wait to see what you guys have in store this year. That's really nice of you, David. We love putting on Macworld. We love having the Mac community come to our town and, and uh, kind of celebrate being an Apple products user. That's really what Macworld is all about, giving people all the information that they need, showing them all the cool products that are being developed in this space. It's very different. It's different to be a Mac user than it is to be a Windows user, and Macworld is one of the biggest personifications of that difference. It certainly is, you know. <laughs> so, Katie, what's your favorite Macworld memory? Um, uh, my favorite Macworld memory is probably from my first Macworld, where I got together with and we met 
um, all of the Mac podcasters. I met you and Victor and Allison and Don and uh, Dave Hamilton and just this this whole group of, of people that I had consulted with on online, listened to their shows, and uh, we just kind of got together for an impromptu lunch one day. I know you were there. And um, really hit things off, hung out kind of the whole show and became great friends, I think, both in the online world and, and in person. And um, we kind of revived the Mac Roundtable. I think we've told that story before as a result of that. Um, and then I do have to just say that last year I roomed with Allison Sheridan, which was just a hoot <laughs> all the well, way know, around. You know, one of my favorite things every year at Macworld is just to go into Tiny Town and look at all the new young or small developers guys who couldn't afford a big booth but just have fantastic ideas and every year I just I love going through there to see what's new and what is just going to knock my socks off. And that's part of the history of the lore of Macworld is the the cool little developer the guys who are you know literally in their garage still and um they're not marketers they're technologists and they're great at getting the product together and they're just kind of getting their chops together with regards to being able to market their product and they come to Macworld and you know so often you hear stories about companies and products being launched at Macworld just because of the critical mass. Because if you're good, you'll be found at Macworld. The press will find you, uh, users will find you, and I think that's another one of the real interesting things. You'll be able to see products that are available for the first time at Macworld. Well, Paul, I really appreciate you taking time to come in and talk to us today. You are our first guest on the show. We've always just kept it the two of us, but you are definitely worth having in to tell us about Macworld, hopefully get some of the listeners excited about going. And uh, thank you once again for coming in. Absolutely my pleasure. Thank you. Yeah. Okay, so where can you find us? Well, you can obviously find us on the new and improved iTunes, although I say one of the things that I have not been happy about with iTunes 9 is that it makes it harder to find podcasts by topic and by category. Have you noticed that on the new iTunes 9 interfaces that you no longer have the, the category list in podcasts? Yeah, and, you know, they kind of... Uh, on the iPhone as well, they, they made it a little more difficult to find us. Right. And the categories are there. They're just, instead of being along the side, you know, that podcast menu at the very top is now a drop down. And, and you can find us in technology. And I think we're in specifically in technology how to. But probably the easier way to find us is to go to our website at MacPowerUsers.com, where you will find all of our show notes as well as links to iTunes. You can also send us an email at feedback at MacPowerUsers.com. Which is great both of us. because yeah. it goes to both of us. You may get a reply from David. You may get a reply from me. You may get separate replies from both of us. One thing I think is funny is sometimes I forget to CC you on my reply or you forget to CC me. And then I get emails from people back saying, you and David both told me to do the same thing independently of each other. <laughs> well, I guess, you know, that's how we roll. That is how we roll. You can also find us on Twitter twitter.com slash macpowerusers well Katie once again it's been a great show it's looking been forward a great to show. the next one on troubleshooting and I guess we'll see you then see you